Sometimes you will hear Christians say that Jesus cannot return until the gospel goes out to the entire world. I hope you know that that is not true. Jesus has never needed anything to happen for him to come and catch up his church. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in Chapter 7 of our study of the Revelation, and today Dr. Brogy begins a look at a mysterious multitude outlined in verses 9 to 17. But before we get to that passage, Dr. Brogy does a quick review of what we've studied so far. Today, as we continue our study of chapter 7, you can see the title of this morning's message is The Mysterious Multitude. And as we move through this book, the book of Revelation, we're going to come to a few places that we might call a parenthetical section, a parenthesis of sorts. And so the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle John, helps us to catch a glimpse of what has been happening on the earth as these various seals that we've been studying in past weeks have been unfolded. In the first half of this chapter, John tells us of 144,000 Jewish men who, according to Revelation 14 and verse 4, are Jewish people from 12 different tribes of the nation of Israel. And these are people who come to faith during the tribulation period, just as God prophesied by Zechariah would happen at the end of the age. And their mission is very simple. It's quite straightforward. It is to preach the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike. And so this morning, we're going to examine the fruits of their preaching. We want to begin where we left off, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Follow along in your Bible. After these things I looked, behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation! to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? Where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore nor will the sun be down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, I believe because Jesus taught it and the apostles modeled it, that one of the best teachers is repetition. So we're going to review once again, especially for those who are with us for the first time, but also to help the rest of us be able to really put into our hearts how the book of Revelation is unfolding. We saw in the opening chapter, the seventh verse, that the theme of this book is that He is coming 
with the clouds. We also saw in Revelation 1 and verse 19 the outline of the book. It's one of the few books in the Bible where God gives us a divine outline. In verse 19 of chapter 1, perfectly follows the entire book. We read there, therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, the things which are, that's the present, the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. The things past, he writes in chapter 1. He gives us that glorious vision of the resurrected Lord. And it's a magnificent picture that we are given of Him and all that He is like and what He's doing. Then He writes the things that are. That's chapters 2 and 3. And so He addresses seven specific churches that were functioning and meeting every Lord's Day in the first century. And then He is writing beyond that, beginning in chapter 4, about the things after these things. He's writing about the future. After these things, that is, after the church age, after the seven churches, He's describing what is happening in the future. In fact, if you look at chapter 4 and verse 1, it begins after these things. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And we saw that expression was a picture of the open door for God to let the church in. And so John is in heaven, and he's there with the 24 elders who are a picture of the raptured church. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. It's like he doesn't want you to miss it. Twice over in the same verse, metatata, after these things. That's the last phrase in 119. It's the opening of verse 4 and verse 1 and the closing of verse 4. He's signaling to us by this structural marker of sorts that we are entering into the futuristic section of the book of Revelation. And then in chapter 4 and verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones... I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Now, I'm not going to review all the various entities that are found in the fourth chapter, but it is critical that you understand the identity of the 24 elders. What's kind of interesting is that if you compare this vision of the throne of God that Isaiah has, it's found in Isaiah 6, or the vision of the throne of God that the prophet Daniel has recorded in Daniel chapter 7, if you compare those two visions with the vision of the throne that John has, they are identical with one big exception. Neither the prophet Isaiah nor the prophet Daniel mentions 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. And really, it's a clue to understanding their identity because the Bible teaches that the doctrine of the church is a mystery, something that was hidden during the Old Testament age. Let me dust off your minds with that truth. Remember when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in the second chapter, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, speaking of us Gentiles, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Elaborates on this mystery in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Listen to this, that by revelation, 
there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has been now revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, here's the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So when the New Testament uses this very important word mystery, it's not referring to something eerie or inscrutable, but rather to a truth that was hidden in the past, but has been made known in this age by the apostles. A mystery, in essence, is a, a sacred secret that's unknown to unbelievers, but known to those believers who know their Bible. And it's treasured by the people of God. The mystery specifically is God at this time in human history is not working exclusively through the Hebrew people, but He's working through the church, a united body of both Jew and Gentile together. And so this group of 24 elders is problematic for those Christians who make the catching up of the church and the second coming one single event. They're called post-tribulationists. They think that the church will be here for the great tribulation. And that the rapture, the word catch up, the harpazo, doesn't happen until the end of the tribulation. And then I suppose we come and make a U-turn and come back to rule and reign. So they attempt to identify these 24 elders as either being angels or tribulation saints or the people of Israel. But again, look at Revelation 4 and verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones with 24 elders sitting on these thrones. And notice how they're clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, we learned in attempting to identify who these 24 elders were that it's helpful to know first that the number 24 in Scripture is a representative number of a large group. We studied a number of different significant numbers earlier in our exposition of Revelation and what they mean and their significance. For instance, in 1 Chronicles 24, there are 24 officers of the sanctuary which represent 24 divisions representing thousands and thousands of Old Testament priests. Likewise, in 1 Chronicles chapter 25, there are 24 divisions of singers in the temple representing some 24 mass choirs of singing. There's the biblical basis for a choir right there in the Old Testament. And as we'll see here, when we come to verse 11, these elders cannot be, these 24 elders who are representative of a large group, the church that has been caught up and raptured, And so beginning in chapter 4, there's no mention of the church until you come to the 19th chapter when Jesus comes to rule and reign. First, He comes for His saints, but then He comes back with His saints. Now, there are saints that are mentioned between 4 and 19, but they're not church saints. They are people who have become saints, tribulation saints, during this seven-year period. But when we come to verse 11, they cannot be angels because these two groups are distinguished. Look at verse 11. It says, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders. 
And clearly, these cannot be the people of Israel, since we're going to see that they enter, just as we studied in Daniel, into national judgment during this seven-year period to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. And neither can they be tribulation saints because of what we're going to read this morning in verses 13 and 14. So clearly, the 24 elders represent the church in heaven because the body of Christ has been caught up. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. One of these days, the last Gentile is going to be saved. And the father is going to say to the son, go get your bride. Could happen today, somewhere on the planet. The last Gentile believer will embrace Jesus as Lord, and he will come for his bride. Now, the church has been raptured before the coming wrath of the Lamb. We've been studying the wrath of the Lamb in the sixth chapter, those sealed judgments. And God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. And we studied in Revelation 5 and verse 10 that the church, these 24 elders, are called kings and priests, and not by accident. There are only three personages in the Bible that are called kings and priests, Melchizedek, in the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus, who is not only a king and a priest, but also a prophet. He's the only one who fills three offices, prophet, priest, and king. But then the church, in chapter 1, the body of Christ are called kings and priests. And so it's not by accident that the 24 elders here in heaven are representative of the church that has been raptured and rewarded and waiting to come back with Jesus. And so again, they're not mentioned again until we come to the 19th chapter. That's not accidental. Now in chapter 4, if you remember, we see God the Father sitting on the throne and the multitudes of people worshiping Him. And John sees heaven arrayed like a courtroom. And the participants there realize what is about to happen. Heaven understands what God is about to do. And so they are giving him glory and honor and power and praise. And then when you step into the fifth chapter in the same courtroom, we are introduced to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb, that's Jesus. And beginning then in chapter 6, we see the unfolding of the wrath of the Lamb. He who is worthy, who alone by his own shed blood on Golgotha is given the scroll, he alone is worthy to open up the scroll and to reclaim what God had initially given to Adam. God gave to Adam, and by application and extension to you and me, dominion over the world. And when Adam sinned, the Bible says in Romans 5, 12, all sinned. So you can't blame the sin nature that you inherited from your parents on Adam. You were in and with Adam when he sinned. And so we're born in iniquity. By nature, by birth, by choice, we're all sinners. And so when Adam rebelled, we rebelled with Adam. God had given him dominion, but in essence, he lost the farm. And so we studied how Satan and the temptation of Christ offered Jesus the kingdoms of this world. And it's never disputed. It's a legitimate offer because Satan achieved and secured what Adam had lost. It's never disputed. That usurper is now called the God, small g of this age, the prince of the world, the prince of the power of the air. But Christ 
by his death on the cross, redeems it. He has paid the price, and so he alone is worthy. If you're with me about a decade ago, we studied the book of Ruth, and we worked all the way through it, and in the last sermon, I went through all the typology that is found in Ruth. A type is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. And so we learn a lot about Jesus and the church and God's future work through types. There are pictures in the Old Testament. They're concealed, but they are revealed in this age. And if you remember Boaz, he is the kinsman redeemer. There had to be a a near relative that could redeem the land and with the land, Ruth and Naomi. And the only near relative... um, was one other man. He was not interested. And so Boaz comes along, and as the kinsman redeemer, he secures the place that he so earnestly wanted that he might take a bride. And so he takes Naomi the Hebrew, and he takes Ruth the Gentile under his care. And so you have a picture by type in the Old Testament of what the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, God had to be a near relative, so to speak. And so the second Adam from above takes on our humanity. That's what we're celebrating in this season, that God became a man in order that he might redeem us. So now in chapters 6 through 19, we have a detailed record of how he is going to secure what he obtained at Golgotha. Here's a chart that might be helpful to you, giving us the order of events Again, the next event on God's calendar is the harpazo. It's the Greek word for caught up. We shall all be caught up. And we call that the rapture. It comes from the Latin translation of the Bible. People say the rapture is not in the Bible. Yes, it is. It was in the Latin Bible. It still is. But the Latin Bible was the one Bible they used for a thousand years. The only translation the church had for a thousand years It's incredible. And so we have all these Latin terms even on the window behind us. The church is caught up. We meet Jesus, and we face the judgment seat of Christ. Not to see if we go to heaven. That's settled the moment you call upon Jesus in faith. But to see how you will spend heaven, what your rewards will be like. It's called the Bema Seat. And then after the Bema Seat is the marriage supper of the land, and we come back with Jesus at the second coming. During this seven-year period, it's called the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. It's divided into two parts. Uh, Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, times, times, and half a times, all synonymous terms to describe these two halves. The first half is tribulation. It's even called great tribulation in Revelation 6. But something happens in the middle of the tribulation. You see it there on the chart, A period, O period, D. That stands for the abomination of desolation. And when that event happens, it becomes super great tribulation. Tribulation like the world has never seen. We've been studying this tribulation and the seal judgments, but it's lightweight compared to what we are going to study, what is going to follow. And there will be 21 specific judgments that we will see. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, don't miss this, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So the reader, 
not just in this century, but during the tribulation period, they're going to be reading this prophecy that Jesus gave there in the Mount of Olives. He ascends to heaven from the Mount of Olives. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives at the second coming. And he said there's going to be an event in the middle of the 70th week that Daniel records. Jesus didn't see Daniel as a historian. He saw him as a prophet. The critics of our day say Daniel is too specific. He had to have written after the fact. Well, they're differing with the Lord Jesus, and I'm in Jesus' camp. In either case, there's going to be 21 judgments and seal trumpets and bowls. Now, last week, I introduced you to this next chart. If you'll bring it up for me, you will see the parallel between Matthew 24, where Jesus meets with four of his disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, on the Mount of Olives, and they ask him about his return from heaven. And what is so fascinating is that Matthew 24 perfectly parallels what we are studying in Revelation 6 and today in Revelation chapter 7. Jesus spoke of false Christ. That was the first seal. That was the first horseman of the apocalypse. See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, I'm the Christ, and will mislead many. The church is brought up into heaven through the open door, and the deceivers come like never before. And the epitome of all the deceivers, the lead deceiver, is Antichrist himself who comes on a white horse mimicking Jesus because he comes back on a white stallion as well. Jesus went on to tell his disciples in verse 6 of that chapter, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's the second seal. That's the red horse of war, which will be a time of unparalleled war upon the planet. War will be on everyone's lips. Constant rumors of another war to come as they see war after war. Then Jesus moves to the third trauma that we saw in the third horseman of the apocalypse when the third seal is broken. And in various places, there will be famine. That's the black horse of famine that we studied and the hunger that he brings. Then comes the fourth horseman on an ashen horse, on a pale horse, depending on your translation, where there will be worldwide pestilence and death. And so the fourth seal corresponds to what Christ had said there, that in various places there will be earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. We are not in the birth pangs. People like today say, oh, look at all the earthquakes and look at all the famine, and this must mean we're, you know, in the tribulation or no, no, no. The birth pangs that Jesus is speaking of happen in the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Now, it is true we're seeing in a lot of incredible things today that remind us that the water is soon to break, that maybe we're near full term. And then when the water breaks, look out because the woman is going to go into full labor. And they, in the fifth seal, it says they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another. Again, that almost identically parallels what we saw in Revelation chapter 6 with the breaking of the fifth seal. And then Jesus adds, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
And so what do we read when the fifth seal is broken? These saints, these tribulation saints who maintain their testimony, who would not renounce Jesus, they would not embrace the Antichrist, and they suffer death. They are beheaded. Again, that will be the form of execution. It's fascinating to me that that form of execution has been reintroduced. We have not seen it since the time of the French Revolution, but it is here in the 21st century where Christians, believers in Yeshua and Jesus, are being beheaded once again. But they will maintain their testimony. The one who endures to the end, speaking of tribulation saints, they'll be saved. Now, you're not saved by perseverance. But the one who is saved will persevere. That's the teaching of the New Testament. You will never, ever, ever renounce Christ. Then we studied the sixth seal. But that interestingly, remember when the sun is darkened and the moon becomes like blood and the stars, the asteroids, probably asteroids fall to the earth. He doesn't mention that at this point in the Olivet Discourse. Probably because he wants to highlight the time it happens again. In fact, it's going to happen a couple of times during the seven-year period. But the principal time it happens is immediately after the tribulation. And so at this point, though, he doesn't highlight it, but he does, in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, give some general information about it, where he says there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Then Jesus makes this statement, and this is where we are today. In Matthew 24, 14, 2415 is the abomination of desolation. When does that happen in the seven-year period? In the middle. So we're not at the middle yet. 2415, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, sometimes you will hear Christians say that Jesus cannot return until the gospel goes out to the entire world. I hope you know that that is not true. Jesus has never needed anything to happen for him to come and catch up his church. There's not a single prophecy that has ever needed to be fulfilled in the history of the church since the day of Pentecost that needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back to rapture his church. All kinds of prophecy that need to be fulfilled for the second coming to happen. And so, yes, this gospel will go out to the whole world, and then the second coming will happen. And when is that going to happen? You know, you'll hear missiologists say, well, we've got to get the gospel in every translation. We have a speaker coming. He worked with me several years when I was at Duke University. He was in my Bible studies, and Dan Scribner will come. He's uh, the person who for the last 30 years, has cataloged every unreached people group in the world. And God is using them in a phenomenal way. And the Joshua Project and the information they supply is used by every mission agency in the world. He's going to be one of our speakers. I'm very excited that he is able to come this year to present to us. But he reminded me yesterday that there are 1,700 languages that still need be, to be translated, that people might have a copy of the scriptures in their language. Now, you'll meet some missiologists who will say, well, Jesus can't come by until we get all the Bibles translated and everybody can hear the gospel that way. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy will get into the meat of our message from Revelation chapter 7 as he looks at the mysterious multitude introduced in verse 9. To listen again to this or any of the messages in our study of the Revelation, 
Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call us at 877-787-7478 and order today's program on CD or DVD by asking for message number REV20. And if you can help support Search the Scriptures by making a singular gift or by becoming a monthly supporter, please let us know. Our phone number again is 877-787-7478 or click the Give button on either our app or at our website, searchthescriptures.org. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our look at the mysterious multitude of Revelation 7 and Search the Scriptures.